what you'll hear on Patreon. What we're losing is a world now where there's any clarity about even what the common questions are. I mean, if you think about the last 150 years, as an example, there was communism and capitalism throughout the 20th century. And you can say, well, these people had different ways of viewing the world, but they actually agreed on something. They agreed that the most useful and relevant uh, and accurate frame of reference for looking at societal problems was economic. Now, the communists said, well, we've got to have state running the economy. And the capitalists said the market should run it, but they agreed problems were economic, fundamentally political economic. Okay, so today, what is the shared question? There's no clarity, to my mind, what the shared question is. Uh, because again, we think the problem is each other increasingly. My name is Dr. Callum Nicholson, and uh, I am head of research at the Climate Policy Unit in Budapest. And I also teach at the Institute of Continuing Education at the University of Cambridge. I wondered if we could kind of start out by thinking about some of your sort of larger framing ideas, because as we were talking, I thought, gosh, you sound a lot like me. I, I had the same uh, thing when I, um, when I heard you speak. I thought, oh, she's saying a lot of the stuff I'm saying. And I'm interested in why that might be. Do we have some kind of common intellectual roots, perhaps? But um, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about your idea of an epidemiological approach to what you call ideological contagion. Now, could you unpack that a little bit for me? What does that all mean? Hmm. Well, first, it's worth noting that the, uh, if you go back to medieval times, in, 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 if you look at the spread of biological contagions, or physical contagions, uh, we had an, a model known commonly as the humors model. So someone would get sick and we'd think they had too much phlegm or too much bile or too much blood. Uh, and it was only with the biomedical revolution where we developed a proper study of disease, a proper epidemiology of disease, that society was able to actually treat disease. Prior to that, we confused often the symptom and the pathology. So, for instance, there'd be, say, the Black Death, and people would look at the pustules on the body, uh, the boils and so on, and they'd think that was the disease. But of course, that's a symptom of the disease, and no one really knew how it spread. And so only when we really had a biomedical revolution in, um, in the study of biological contagion uh, were we able to really treat the problems we're, we're facing. Uh, but it seems to me that in how we understand um, ideological contagion, contagions of the mind, uh, viral ideas, and it's no coincidence that we often talk of ideas being viral, because um, the, they do spread mind to mind in a sense. Uh, I still think how we think about them is quite medieval. We've never really had the equivalent of a biomedical revolution for the study of ideological contagion. And something I think is very interesting uh, uh, is that if you look at the, the phrase or the word epidemiology, and if the study of disease, we're all familiar with it in the context of the pandemic, but the actual meaning of it in, uh, in Greek was the study of what is upon the people. And this is very interesting because it doesn't reference biology or the body. Uh, it could, I think, apply as much to the study of the viral contagions of the body politic as the viral, idea, the viral uh, viruses of the, of the body, spread body to body. Um, so it seems to me that often what we're looking, what we're seeing in society is, is like a um, is, a, is a failure to diagnose properly. And I could give you an example, if you want, just to illustrate that. Um, so if you look at the polarization we're seeing in the world right now, uh, take any example, you could take Brexit, you could take, uh, but let's take the American politics. In American politics, in, in, to simplify, obviously, quite a lot, um, you have these sort of two camps. You call it the sort of Trump right, and you can have sort of the, I don't know, some might call it the woke left, right? The progressive left. And uh, often, 
uh, what happens at the moment is one side looks at the other side and say, they're the disease, they're the pathology and we're the cure and vice versa. So of course the Trump people look at the young sort of folks in the, in New York and say, those people are destroying America. We need to make America great again. And of course, those people look at the Trump people and say, those people are destroying America, basket of deplorables, bunch of racists or something, and they're destroying America with a cure. But when I look at these two sides, what I see are two symmetrical symptoms of a shared pathology that isn't, is in need of a cure. So I think they're both misdiagnosing it. Uh, how do I, what do I mean by that? So if you, t if you look at your average Trump voter, again, to, to generalize a lot, what you have to stereotype, what I think is there's a truth in it, is it's someone from middle America, so-called flyover country, who probably is more blue collar, probably a bit older, uh, lower level of education in terms of formal university education. And then if you look at someone in, say, New York City, more likely to be someone who is uh, younger, uh, a little bit more middle class, maybe university educated. Um, so there are these, and obviously sort of more coastal. And, but what's interesting is that in as much as the two sides hate each other, I think they're suffering from the same uh, disease. Like they're, they're suffering the same privations because if you are a blue collar car worker in middle America, uh, you've seen your jobs and therefore your dignity go overseas through globalization of the last few decades. And so this has actually led, I think, in part to the fact that such a widespread uh, opioid epidemic in these sorts of areas, precisely because people are trying to treat and numb the pain and the pain is that the loss of meaning and dignity and so on. I mean, it's worth noting that, you know, if you look at films about, you know, the American suburbs in the 1980s, it was always a kind of a utopia, a safe utopia that you live in. But it's very interesting in the last 10 years, if you watch a movie about the American suburbs, it's about a dystopia with, uh, you know, burnt out suburbs and uh, drug addiction and so on, um, because that world has been lost in a sense. So those people are suffering, I think, the privations of sort of neoliberal globalization where there's no value higher than the market, where we are no longer ends in ourselves, but means to someone else's economic end. And that's led to a hollowing out of, of those societies, which has meant that those people who feel failed by the establishment have turned to say Trump. Um, Trump may not hold any values that anyone recognizes, but at least he's not the establishment who's ignored them. Uh, so that's them. But then if you look at the sort of uh, progressive left people, the younger people in New York, think about the problems they're facing. Often they're people who are facing uh, massive student debt. They can't find a secured job. Even if they can, they can't afford a house. Um, and, and the rents are very high. And they have all these types of uh, problems, which have their parents' generation, our parents' generation didn't really have. It's very difficult now for someone, unless they are an investment banker or a management consultant or a doctor, to really aspire to the same sort of, um, uh, sort of middle-class upbringing with a suburban house and a, and a stable sort of family life with a bunch of kids and so on. It's very hard to imagine that for a lot of younger people. And I think, you know, if you, if you have nothing in a sense, at least you can say, well, I'm virtuous. I have my virtue. Uh, sort of a Franciscan sort of view of the world that we may not have anything else, but we're virtuous. But if you look at both sides, the, the, the people who vote for, say, Trump and the people who ascribe to these, uh, subscribe to these sort of uh, progressive uh, poly uh, uh, philosophies, these very virtuous philosophies, they seem to me people who are, they're, they're symmetrical. They're both suffering, suffering the privations of neoliberal, you know, globalized capital. And if you, uh, so these, these young people in the coastal cities are, um, all these problems they're facing of student debt and so on is because of, for instance, the neoliberalization of education where fees have gone up dramatically. Um, so 
I think my example here is to demonstrate that both sides look at the other and say, they're the disease and I'm the cure. But what I see is, again, two symmetrical symptoms of a shared disease that's in need of a cure. But as long as they're fighting each other, they're not recognizing their common cause. And I think it's no coincidence, just to finish up here, is that I don't think it's a coincidence that, um, you know, if, if the corporations are, are doing that, well, it's interesting when you look at social media driving the, the polarization, well, who's social media's customers? It's not us, it's not the normal people because we don't pay for the service. The people paying for the social media service are the corporations advertising on it. And that's a whole other conversation we can talk about. But, um, but the point of that is to say that an epidemiological approach is really to say, often we look at social problems in terms of cures and disease, but sometimes I think we miss out that a lot of we think is it a lot of what we think is the disease or indeed the cure are simply symptoms uh, of the disease, which remains hidden. Okay. So I, there's a few things that I want to ask about that. But um, when you talked about social media driving this kind of polarization um, and you alluded to who might be behind it, that sort of thing. Um, one thing that was really interesting that happened to me once was um, I was just, you know, overly online as I am. I was on Twitter and uh, Twitter at the time, no, now X. Somebody um, accused me of having white privilege, and it was a, a weird tweet because it, it seemed very human. Mm. And then about two weeks later, she tweeted at me the exact same thing, um, as though it had never been tweeted before. And then I looked at the profile, and I realized it's a bot. And I thought, who the hell is making these bots? Or it might be somebody on like a social media farm somewhere or something like, mm. you know, copying and pasting or something like that there's a large number of these similar kinds of tweets and you know if you look at people who comment on biden as soon as biden posts something on 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 twitter it's it's like bots that are equally vociferous on either side and there was a huge um scandal well no it wasn't as much of a scandal as you would think it was in fact most people don't know anything about this but there was an a, a kind of conspiracy that was uncovered where it turned out that Russia was funding all these identity politics groups and like Facebook groups and accounts and so on. And the people were real people. They thought that they were doing work for think tanks uh, and spreading a great message. But mm. it turned out that Russia was doing this, that they were sort of ratcheting up these, these conflicts on purpose. And do you, did you hear anything about that? Do you have a sense of why that might be? And, and does that fit into the story that you're telling right now? Well, I mean, I do think that, you know, if you look online, uh, if you're having an interaction with someone that's sponsored by a third party, I think you can presume it's being manipulated in some way. Uh, I've never been too sure, honestly, what to make of the, the patterns of comments online. It's very easy for people to simply say, um, as a pejorative, oh, that's just a bot, you know, I'm never quite sure how we determine that. I mean, I will say if I look on, I, I've always been fascinated by the pattern of comments you see underneath videos. Across the spectrum, I mean, one I find quite interesting, simply because the pattern is if you look on uh, Jordan Peterson uh, videos, and if you look at the, the comments underneath, they always have almost exactly the same phrasing. It's always something quite um, overly formal, like, gentlemen, you know, we are privileged to live in the same time as this great man, and gentlemen, let, let the world protect this great man. And it's a very particular type of um, almost quite pompous sort of uh, formulaic uh, um, deference. And I was always wondering, is this just the, it could be two things, right? On the one hand, it could be uh, a bot farm of people posting, you know, I don't know, it could be someone like Peterson, I don't have no idea, but sponsoring, uh, um, uh, getting some 
uh, bot to post comments, which uh, creating a that is an excellent idea. Why didn't I think of that? Because well, I exactly. get comments I should... that are like, "You don't bitch!" Like pretty regularly, I should just pay yeah. people to come it's... on and be like, well, yeah, clearly... "No, this wonderful That's... lady deserves." Well, exactly. Uh, so it's the so it's either that or it's simply the the alternative explanation is that again it's a type of ideological contagion that people have seen the uh, the manner that one ought to interact they believe in the comments section on that video and they and they they behave in that way i mentioned peter so because i'm fascinated by the types of i've noticed the pattern in the comments once and i find it is particularly noticeable under his videos um uh but the but i think it's the case across the spectrum on, on lots of things uh whether it's bots or not i don't know but i do know that the um uh, indeed i don't know how you tell whether something is a bot or not um, and even with the tweet where someone said to you twice that you have privilege, you know, even there, I mean, I, I think it's also true that people can be very repetitive, particularly people who are single issue obsessives. You know, if someone's life is to be online tweeting at people righteously that you're wrong in some way, they will probably come circle back to you in a week, um, uh, because they've forgotten they tweeted the first time, which is one of the points about social media that I don't understand. I do not understand why if someone tweets vexatiously at an institute, say there's a a professor at a university. Um, uh, so say, for instance, we're doing this talk now, and then someone tweets Cambridge University saying, at Cambridge University, did you know that uh, Callum Middleson is uh, speaking to Ashley Frawley, and uh, he's been accused of white privilege or something? Um, the universities often then react, maybe not in this case, but they often react to these types of online, uh, sort of quite vexatious, uh, um, attempts to um, have people ostracized, what we sometimes call cancel culture. There's an old word for it, ostracization. And um, the, um, but I often think, why don't they just ignore it? Because in, in two days, the person who sent it, by dint of being the type of person who would have sent it, has moved on to find the next sort of um, dopamine hit of the next vexatious comment somewhere else. So they forget about it. It gets lost. It's very hard to find tweets like a day old if you send a lot of tweets because it's so buried. I don't understand why they don't just cool the heels and, and do nothing for a few days. Uh, it's very odd how everyone reacts too quickly to things because uh, all these institutes should simply have a policy where if you don't write a physical letter, then they won't respond to it. I mean, that would be a pretty good policy to avoid a whole range of, of confected uh, outrage. But do you think it serves any powerful interest to ratchet up this polarization or do you think it's just a, an unfortunate symptom of our online disease? No, I think it does serve interest, of course, because um, the, obviously there's the we know about the political, the geopolitical interests that different states have an incentive to uh, to divide and maybe not rule, but divide and cause chaos in in opposing countries. Um, I'm not really an expert on on what Russia's role was in say U.S. elections. I, I really I'm not competent to talk about it, but I but I do think there is one thing that I think we can definitely see, which is that. These sort of neoliberal corporations absolutely have an incentive to make us focus on issues other than what they're doing. Uh, so, for instance, if you look at um, uh, during the social justice process about three years ago, um, I always felt that a lot of these sort of progressive, so-called woke, I don't really like the term woke very much, but the, these sort of neo-Puritan ideologies that spread very quickly uh, online, um, they seem to me, these people seem to be, I called them sort of... Uh, um, uh, woke handmaidens of neoliberalism, because it seemed like a very neoliberal movement in a in a few ways. Uh, one is that if you are um, blaming uh, everything on on racism, for instance, 
then you're, or if you're rather, if you're dismissing people who vote for Trump as a basket of deplorables, as Hillary Clinton did, you're not looking at why are they in a position where they're looking for a scapegoat. And so often they're, you know, again, just to stereotype a bit, someone who used to work in a car factory in their thirties and is now 60 on opioids, sitting in the house, just with a smartphone, tweeting stuff, or going to vote for Trump or something, or going to a Trump rally. Um, these people have uh, had a pretty hard time for a few decades as their jobs have gone overseas. If we simply dismiss them as a basket of deplorables, we're not actually having any empathy for the circumstance that make them vote for someone like Trump. And so it serves neoliberal interests to just focus on the racism part or, or the, or the association with that. Uh, another thing is if we're looking at impoverished, uh, say African-American communities on the South side of Chicago and say all their problems are due to racism, it's missing out the fact that through sort of neoliberal, uh, government ideology, a lot of, uh, local public services, uh, be it bus lines, be it after-school clubs, uh, be it investment in education have all been stripped out and shut down, uh, which has led to a hollowing out, hollowing out of society. Um, it's a sort of society increasingly where, uh, anything that is qualitative that can't be quantified is not seen as valuable. Uh, so we have the, we know the price of everything and the value of nothing. Um, another way that the, the neoliberal and sort of progressive ideologies match is a third way is that, um, uh, if a corporation stands up and, and can say, we champion, you know, BLM, right. They can look virtuous, which is good marketing for them. Uh, but again, it's covering up the fact of all the things they're doing, which are actually stripping out societies so they can look virtuous despite the reality. And of course the hypocrites as well, because you know, the NBA will stand up and say, you know, the national basketball association will be all about BLM. But if a athlete stands up and talks about democracy rights in Hong Kong or the Uyghur in Xinjiang then uh, they, the NBA tells them to be quiet because, of course, China is a great market for the NBA. But the fourth and final way in which I think the, there's a close relationship, however unwitting, between the sort of neo-Puritan activists and neoliberalism, capitalism, is, um, uh, is actually within the workplace. That We used to all understand that HR departments were not our friend. If you're a worker, HR departments were there to protect the people who run the company and to make sure that the 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 people who work there stay in line. But then we've developed this idea recently that HR departments are the friend of the workers. And so what we hear is HR departments talking about the need to further rights and so on within the workplace and, uh, and to stamp out racism and white privilege and all these sorts of things. But the real structural effect of that, forget about the content, the structural effect is, is makes everyone a bit scared. Everyone's a bit worried that if they just step out of line and say the wrong word or, or just get misinterpreted, that they may lose their job. And this makes for docile workers. And so again, it serves the interests of neoliberal capital. So the thing I find baffling about all of this um, activism around these issues in recent years is these people think they are against the system, but they seem the most, they seem, they seem to be precisely handmaidens of the establishment on this. So if your point was about, you asked about whether, you know, I think what's the, uh, do I think the, the polarization is a, is a, a fault or a feature, or is it intentional or not? Uh, I, I, I think it probably is politically, though I'm not that competent to speak about that, but certainly in terms of the economic system, um, I think it absolutely is. And, and that really comes back to the fact that we don't pay for our social media as an example. Um, but someone does, which is the advertisers. So, you know, you and I are not the customers of social media. We're the product and the, the customers are the corporations getting our data to sell us things. Furthermore, it, it, now let's go to the major media. For what are the major media? Well, they're huge corporations. Okay, the New York Times, Washington Post, NBC, they first of all are large corporations, quite profitable ones, in fact. 
Uh, secondly, they're parts of even bigger conglomerates, like, you know, Westinghouse and GE and so on. Now, like any corporation, they sell a product on a market. This is a market, roughly a, mar a kind of a state-guided market society. Uh, what's the product and what's the market? Well, the market's advertisers. Uh, the, that is, other businesses. So they're selling a product to other businesses. Corporations are selling a product to other businesses. What's the product? Well, the product is audiences. And I think as long as people don't recognize that, then they'll continue to, I think, misdiagnose the polarization. Doesn't necessarily serve Putin in some diabolical way, but it definitely serves neoliberal cap capitalism. Um, and then another sort of crossover to neoliberalism is the, is the obsession with behavior management. Mm. That this is like a sort of highly neoliberal um, idea of like that you have to sort of very carefully manage the uninitiated individual who just doesn't know any better and therefore needs the sort of technocratic management of everyday life. And people are like, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. That's cool. I'll police that. I will find the areas where more technocratic management is needed. And I will demand as a condition of being a progressive society that you intervene. And so you wind up demanding more neoliberal intervention to manage mm. people's behaviors, manage people's thoughts and feelings and so on out of this belief that then finally we'll be able to solve these problems. Yeah, I agree. And the Something I, I think is interesting is um, Michel Foucault, the French philosopher, in a book called Discipline and Punish, he talks about Jeremy Bentham's idea of the panopticon. And the panopticon was a, a kind of theoretical prison where all the prisoners were um, in their cells, but all faced a central tower, I think, with darkened windows. And so in theory, one guard could guard the entire prison because, because the prisoners knew they might be being observed, but they couldn't see if they were being observed. They led to disciplining themselves. Um, uh, in a certain way to avoid punishment. And so the idea was you had a very efficient prison. One guard could theoretically guard everyone. And, uh, and I feel today with the internet, we're living in a sort of digital panopticon because, you know, we can see what's on our screen, but what we can't see is what the corporation can see of us. Uh, as an example with sales, you know, I think Amazon, you know, we know they get the data on what we click on, but I think they also get the data on where our pointer is hovering on the screen. So they know if we almost bought something. They have that sort of data. So we don't know always how much data they're getting. And if you look at um, a lot of behavior in the internet age, I think we have all, regardless of what our politics are, find ourselves re-sculpting how we phrase things uh, just for fear or, or in reaction to the, the presumption of what will happen online. Uh, I'll give an example. I, I was teaching uh, uh, a few years ago, I was delivering a course at a university and, and, uh, and the director of the, um, of the institute um, the, uh, got in touch with me of the department, sorry, and said, look, we've looked at your course and, uh, we saw it was during the COVID period and they saw that I'd given a link to a poem. I was teaching a lecture on migration and there's a, there's a, there's a poem online by a, uh, an English poet called, uh, Holly McNeish. And it's actually a pro-immigration poem, but she begins the poem by saying, by these two characters having a dialogue and one's anti-immigration, one's pro-immigration. And the anti-immigration guy goes, those goddamn Pakistanis with their goddamn corner shops. That's what his phrasing is. And then the other person goes, no, but they, they bring, they don't, you know, they also bring jobs. And there was this, this debate between these two characters. So it was not an anti-immigration poem, but simply because of the phrasing of it for one of the characters she was playing in the poem, I was asked by the department in the context of the social justice uh, protest. They said, would you mind maybe removing that? Because we're worried that it could be isolated and it could be um, cut out and it could be, uh, posted online and then we'd get negative press and so on. And we don't need that right now. And I was in a difficult position because, um, I felt it was totally fine to have it there. Uh, it wasn't a 
doing there wasn't anything wrong with the poem um but i also didn't want to offend uh, my my you know my colleague um uh, but i also didn't want to you know endanger my position there too and something we don't talk about with cancel culture is that some people say cancel culture doesn't exist but it's not strictly like the cases of cancellation are actually quite rare of someone actually being you know disciplined and then kicked out you know unjustly but what there is a lot of i think is preemptive self-censorship in the face of the risk or the fear of so-called cancellation. And it has this sort of effect where institutes are scared and people are scared. Um, so I think this is a good example of how we've sort of re-sculpted our behavior a bit through this sort of digital panopticon where we, we it's as much the fear and how we preemptively change our behavior more than just the, the, the outcomes where people didn't and are so-called canceled or ostracized. There's a quote from Stalinist Russia where they say, we've done away with censorship. Was it Stalinist Russia? No, sorry, it wasn't Stalinist Russia. It was uh, fascist Italy. But they said that we've done away with censorship because we censor at the source rather than <laughs> at the end. So people people censor before they even speak. So there's no need for censorship anymore. What are you even talking about? I wanted to go back to what you were talking about with this sort of epidemiological approach. Mm. Um I wonder, is there a downside to using this kind of medicalized biological mm. kind of framework to criticize how people themselves are pathologizing? Do you not then do that yourself? You mm. sort of adopt this. So to give you an example, years ago, I was listening to a podcast and I, uh, the, the guy on the podcast was talking about how um, capitalism is a disease. It was going on and on and on about this. Like he was the first person ever to think of this. Like it was, <laughs> like he woke him up in sleep. Capitalism is a disease. And it, it allowed him to stop thinking about the underlying processes that make something whose outcome may indeed be quite pathological, but the process itself was not malfunctioning. Like mm. people engage in trade and so on, not because they're stupid or mistaken or sick in some way, but because it is logical to do something. And all of these individual logical actions can indeed add up to something that is quite pathological. But to sort of sit there and say it's a pathology makes it sound like you can easily give a cure, right? And it, it can divert attention from what might be quite logical things. So I think you've kind of already touched on this, but I just wondered, do you think by having a kind of epidemiological framework, you fall victim to that yourself? Yeah, this is a question I've actually asked myself. And I, I, I took some pause at some point when I was thinking through this, this set of ideas over the last few years, precisely for this reason, um, I should premise it by saying that, you know, something I thought was a great uh, step about 15 years ago was the destigmatization of, of mental health issues like uh, depression and so on. I thought that was really, really good. The problem that's happened now is that we've gone from sort of recognizing that chronic anxiety is a bit of a pathology, now thinking just having any stress in your life is a pathology. So now people think that everything is a mental health issue, but people are forgetting that life is life is tough. Like life is often full of stress and difficulty, um, and uh, for many reasons, it can be socially, it can be physically. You know, you, you can life is difficult. And um, and I, one thing I think is quite sad these days is that increasingly, um, a lot of teenagers are being told that um, if they feel unease in their own body or anything else, that there's something wrong with them. But actually, it's just being a teenager. I don't know about you, but I remember being a teenager and. You know, everything's growing at a strange rate and your nose does this and your ears do this and things and you you feel uh you know you you're you're it's a difficult time and um and and you know school sucks you know like it's a hard time for all of us and i think the we kind of forget that 
But I think what's happening is no one told me when I was a kid that it was supposed to be otherwise, that my life should be some gilded experience. Um, but the problem is today, I think kids are being sold this, um, this, sort, of, this sort of idealist, uh, I think, lie, really, that life is perfectable. And indeed, if it's not perfect, that, uh, that there's something wrong with them. And um, so I think that the, the mental health movement as a framing concern has, has, has gone too far. We do now, as you say, pathologize everything. So I was thinking, well, am I doing this now? Am I just, as you say, just simply adopting a fashionable idea to find pathologies everywhere? Um, but I think there may be a distinction, which is that I'm not trying to look at people and pathologize um, the individual or, or to say that, oh, this person's own experience is simply uh, a mental health issue, for instance. But I am looking at the broader structures of society and saying, in, in, from a context of, say, society writ large and indeed governments and so on, when people start talking about solutions to general structural problems or general societal problems or things even that could be addressed with policymaking, for instance, um, I do feel if there's an interest in solving a problem, you need to know what the problem is. And I feel often we are simply misdiagnosing the problem from that sort of macro perspective. Um, I wouldn't apply it to the individual, um, but I do think you can maybe take this a view of less pathologizing what's wrong with the person, but what's wrong with the way we think about the person. I suppose that's the, 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 the angle. So it's kind of more meta, maybe. Um, but one thing I think it's worth noting is, you know, so often in society, I think people, we all make a very basic error uh, that we, we all know that the world has problems and we'd all we all know that we'd like the world not to. So we, we kind of know there is a problem. We know we'd like there to be a solution. But knowing there is a problem isn't the same thing as knowing the nature of the problem. And you'll never find a solution unless you can diagnose the nature of the problem. It's just like being sick. You know when you're sick and you know you'd like not to be sick. And you remember what it felt like not to be sick. But you need to get the illness diagnosed to cure it. And I think so often in society, we are, we are not simply um, misdiagnosing the problems. As an example of what I mean, um, if you look at society today, for me, in general, what our politics used to be, or indeed even put it on a spectrum of politics, for me, the difference between the center left and the center right is they kind of agree on the problems and the questions, but they disagree on the solutions. So the left, the center left may say we need more state, the center right, we need more free market. But I think the problem with the far left and the far right, there are all these, this sense of spectrum is confused these days for interesting reasons. But the, the difference between the far left and the far right is they don't disagree on the solution. They disagree on the problem precisely because they think the problem is each other. It's ad hominem. They're saying, no, you're the disease and I'm the cure. No, you're the disease and I'm the cure. Um, and this is the, the, what's happened is that I, I think most people are still, the, the spectrum of people probably left to their own devices still does this. It's sort of a, a curve. It's like a, a, a bell-shaped curve, I suppose, in terms of most people are kind of in the middle. But something about the online world means the only way you are really normalized to articulate yourself is at the extremes. If you say something fairly moderate, no one's going to tweet it to like it or retweet it to dislike it. You know, it just gets no reaction. And so it's an online world that, that prizes polarization. So I think a lot of people who are naturally quite moderate in the real world online find themselves pushed to the extremes. This is the problem I was trying to get to with the, with the epidemiology. It was not really about the individual, which I'd agree there's an over-pathologization of our lives. Um, but I do think how we look at broader societal problems, we aren't rigorous enough in how we diagnose. And I think, I think we do need to have a way of diagnosing problems. But as you say, there's a fine line between that and, and, and finding a pathology in everything. I noticed as more and more leaders come online, they start to play this game too. 
and you get really nervous. You're thinking like, okay, look, I can shit post with, you know, <laughs> and argue and so on. But I don't want anyone with access to a nuclear arsenal trying to, you know, get a whole bunch of likes and retweets, you know, by saying something extreme. I don't want them to be playing this game. You know, this is for the nobodies. This is for the people who know. They can say what they want. They can be extreme. They can be, you know, edgelords or whatever it is. And there's no consequences, you know? And we're all just navel-gazing. But when you have somebody, when you have people who have real power playing this game, it makes it makes people nervous. I think probably for good reason. This is why... Part of the reason why Trump became, first of all, so so popular, but also because he knew how to play that game, right? He played mm. it really well. But also why people were like, what? <laughs> they, they just blew their minds because it was, they're so used to this perfect PR savvy politics mm. that, first of all, when somebody broke it to the people that were kind of were tired of the PR savvy politics, it sounded to them like a breath, a breath of fresh air. Mm. Um, but to the people who, you know, were used to that and wanted it, it was really, really horrifying. And there is something really quite horrifying about that, actually, that, that this is the game we're now playing. You know, we, we start with the people who, you know, find, you know, engage in the American Revolution and so on, being sons of the Enlightenment and Renaissance men themselves and great thinkers. And then you have Donald Trump tweets and you're like, Oh, civilization. (laughs) It was such a, we had a good run of it. It was a good time while it lasted. I don't know what you thought about that. Yeah, no, I agree with you. So it's interesting about the um, people online that I I do find, and and I haven't looked at your tweets, so I'm, you know, no offense, it's not directed to you, but the, um, but I have to say, I think I've yet to see a single Twitter account of a single person where I've thought better of them as someone I knew previously, either personally or read their work. Uh, as virtually no one who looks better because of Twitter. And I generally think if we're not willing, my, my general policy with social media, which I, I try and avoid uh, social media, but my general view is that if you're not willing to write what you want to say down on a piece of paper, fold it up, stick it in an envelope, get an umbrella, walk down the rain to the post office, queue behind seven or eight grannies in the post office, shuffling forward to the, to the post it, buy a stamp, stick it on, and stick it in the post box, then no one needs to hear what you have to say. And, uh, and I try and apply this to myself and, you know, I kind of talk for a living, but I, I, I recognize that there's not much I can say in 140 characters that's really going to contribute much, but the, um, uh, but there's that, but I also think about what you said about Trump is interesting because if you think about what international sort of, um, or what statesmen do, or the very concept of a statesman is a very sort of mid 19th century concept that came out of, uh, sort of Metternich and all these people and sort of these high collared Victorian, uh, you know, black dinner jackets with the high collar and things. And that even the, the dress sense of how a diplomat or how a statesman acts, or how a politician acts, that is very much reflecting sort of 19th century European norms of a very particular culture at a very particular time that itself was quite a, quite a repressed culture in some ways. And um, because of the way history evolved since then, I think the norms of international etiquette and how you perform in the public sphere got sort of uh, um, ossified in that culture. And, um, and it doesn't mean it's, it's it's natural or normal. It's just the thing we've ended up with. And, uh, and it became obviously became more and more refined. So if you look at politicians in the last few decades, if you look at, if I think of the UK, for instance, in the UK, uh, one of the things that occurred under Blair in the late nineties and two thousands was that, um, he had a, you know, the concept of, I think spin doctor came from his assistant, uh, Alistair Campbell. And what they were trying to do was to remove all risk. So suddenly you didn't, 
try and elect politicians or select candidates for your party who represented the most value to your party as such, the most added value, but the people who, in a sense, represented the least risk to the party. And so you had this idea of spinning everything where you said everything and nothing at the same time. What you certainly weren't saying was something. And I, I often feel, if you look at what Trump did, that, um, that Trump brought in this era of what people have sometimes called uh, post-truths, right? And they say it like it's a terrible thing, that suddenly we've lost faith in, in, in the truths. We no longer believe what is truth. And I've always seen it slightly differently. I've always seen it as the post-truth era is when people finally came to realize that what they were being told was not true. I mean, if you think about what people are exposed to, you had people like in the financial crisis, Alan Greenspan, who's head of the Federal Reserve, he gave a press conference in 2007. And he'd been head of the Federal Reserve for three decades, thereabouts. He was about 75, I think, at the time. And he gets this extraordinary comment at a press conference where he said, he was asked, what went wrong? Why did the financial crisis happen? And he said, well, I think our theory of how the world worked was wrong. And the thing I find extraordinary about the statement is that he had a theory of how the world worked. That, that was such a hubristic idea to me. And I think what's happened in the years since is people have begun to realize that all of the people that we'd held up as experts, people who transcended culture and history, just to know the technocratic truths, you know, the managerial truths of things. Um, these people had, had promised us that that's what they had. They had some deeper insight, almost a scientific form of uh, politics or economics. But it was all, um, you know, it was all exposed as, as just um, another type of snake oil uh, over the last decade. So I think when people look at Trump and they say, well, he's entered this post-truth era, um, I, I think you could see it as the opposite. It's not uh, suddenly that we've stopped um, recognizing the real truth, but I think people finally realize that nothing really was true in what they were being told. In part two, we discuss why Trump's lies appeal to people, reactions to Israel and Palestine, how we tend to misuse science, and whether everyone online is just playing rhetorical Calvin Ball. Visit patreon.com slash Ashley A. Frawley 